Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, my name is Stephen. I'm the pa- uh, family pastor here at Crosswinds, and I just want to welcome you to our service this morning. Uh, I'm glad you're here, or if you're watching online, we're glad to gather together. We are going through a series on practical prayer, and as we begin, especially our series on prayer, I thought we should pray. So uh, I actually have a prayer that we'll put on the screen that I just want us to read together. And so let's read this together. Dear Jesus, I give you permission today to change me, then use me to change the world. It's a very simple prayer, but it says a lot. For our series on practical prayer, we are taking a look at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. As we get in, we must understand the purpose of this prayer. So I want us to read the whole thing. Um, so we'll have it up on the screen or in your Bibles, Matthew 6, uh, verses uh, 9 through 13. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I love how one writer put it, talked about the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. God wants us to talk to him. Right? That, that's his purpose. It gets more nuanced as we look at the specific things Jesus is telling us to pray about. But God wants us to come to him in prayer. And so this prayer here in Matthew 6 is not something to be prayed word for word, though you can do it. It's not some magical prayer that gets you something special before God. It's an outline for us to relate to God. And we know we should pray, right? Like, we know it. We know the Bible tells us to do it. But I think the reality is we feel like our prayer is lacking something. Maybe we should pray more, or I don't know how to pray. And and I feel this inadequacy quite often. I think we all feel it. You wish you heard God better. You wish you heard him more, prayed more, whatever it is. And as we continue in this sermon and in this series, I want to encourage you that we are all in the same boat. There are no super ninja Christians out there. So as we understand how we relate to God, I want to talk a little bit just about how God designed us. That we are body, mind, and spirit. The saying, you are what you think, is completely lacking. Because we are not merely just brains on a stick. You are much more than mere thought and knowledge. Right? Have you ever walked out of church and you hear a particular sermon, you're like, that was awesome, it's going to change my life. And by Monday or Tuesday, you aren't living it out, or maybe you even forgot about it. It isn't because you don't know something. It rather boils down to much more than knowledge, it's about our hearts. And we see this simply in the command of Jesus in Luke 10, 27. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this goes all the way back to how God revealed himself to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So as we come before God in prayer, we are not just thinking things, We are being called to love him with every aspect of our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our topics today, forgiveness and temptation, 
are not just mind issues, they're heart issues. You can't just think your way through them. So as we dive into the Lord's Prayer, it asks a total of six things. There's six petitions that we see here. The first three are directly to God, and the last three are about us. The first one is about needs we have physically, and the last two, which we're covering today, is about our spiritual needs. So let's jump in. We're going to read these three verses, Matthew 6, 12 through 14. And forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. So like I said, these are the last two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And because we're talking about practical prayer around forgiveness and temptation, but how do these play into our prayer? Like we're going to talk about the practicals of them, but first I want to address how does this play into our prayer? And I think the biggest thing is consistency. These should regular, regularly be a part of what we're praying, right? If, if we're going to see in verse 8 that we're asking for, or right before this, that we're asking for our daily bread, right? That's something we would want to pray regularly. Lord, meet my daily needs. And so I think these other things are supposed to be daily prayers too. How often does forgiveness and the discussion of temptation come up in your prayers? How often do you think about forgiveness and confession outside of Communion Sunday? Do you wrestle around the things you are tempted with? Do you bring them before God? And this is what Jesus is getting at. These should regularly be a part of what we are taking to God. So let us be consistent in these. And so as we look at these, forgiveness is going to look at past offenses. And then as we talk about temptation, we're looking towards the future of possible future offenses. So what is forgiveness? It's simply the dismissing of debt. And right, I think we kind of understand debt, but I wanted us to look at this definition as we proceed. Debt is that which we owe and for which we must suffer punishment unless payment is made. So as, as we're asking God to forgive our debts, right, one of the most important things about it is that sin is a barrier to our prayers. As we come to God in prayer, we ask for forgiveness and yes, Jesus paid for all of our sins, but we are told to continually come to God and repent because unconfessed sin is a barrier. Every human has a problem with sin. We each have a sin nature. We are born with it. It's an inner part of who we are as human. We are bent towards sin right out of the womb. Millard J. Erickson, in his book, Introducing Christian Theology, describes sin as this. Any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God, this may be a matter of act, of thought, or of inner disposition or state. So, right, sin is any action, word, or thoughts, or disposition that doesn't line up with God's word, God's moral law that he's given us through the Bible. And the follower of Jesus, when he sins, it does not affect his eternal standing with God, but it affects his relationship with God. And all sin affects this relationship the same way. It creates a barrier. It reminds me of like, something as a kid, if you ever made the can uh, walkie-talkies with the string in between, and you hold it tight and you could talk through it. But these can string walkie-talkies, I think, are a lot like prayer. Right? I could talk to the other person on the other end, but when we sin, we take the initiative to reach over and snap the string. 
we're saying, I'm rejecting what God has for me and I'm choosing something else. We create a barrier between us and God. And he's inviting us to repent and confess and to come back to him. And there's several verses I want to read for us that talk about this. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities are separating you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Right? We have this tendency, what if I just hide it away? Try not to think about it, and just let time make it go away. I'm sorry, but there's no statute of limitations on sin. Iowa may only hold you to, for accountable for disorderly conduct for one year, or burglary for three years, and yes, I did look those up. But in God's eyes, no sin can be left alone. You might be saying the sin that you have not confessed, that you have not repented from or turned away from, it's not a big deal. I'm still going to church. I'm still reading my Bible. I'm still serving in whatever ministry. But God isn't looking for you to do something. He's looking for you to be something. Right? I want to say that again so it sinks in. God isn't looking for you to do something. He's looking for you to be something. He wants you to be a devoted follower after him, to be holy as he is holy. Not to look good on the outside and then still have a heart full of sin. Right? He wants us to know him and honor him. To know that our prayers can't get past our own lips because we aren't right with God is depressing. So we take that to him and we say, Lord, forgive me of these things. And we're not only told just to ask for our forgiveness, but it's linked that we are asking for our forgiveness as we also have forgiven others. So now we need to talk about how do I forgive others? And before we keep going, I want to get out of the way what forgiveness is not. Because I think while talking about forgiveness, it's easy to be like, well, is he saying this? Or is he saying this? What about this? So let's just get these out of the way. Forgiveness is not excusing sin or letting the guilty off the hook. It's acknowledging the sin and still forgiving. Forgiveness is not just letting time heal all wounds. Forgiveness is not pretending to not be hurt or just explaining away the hurt. Forgiveness does not mean instant restoration of a relationship. Forgiveness takes one person. Restoration takes two. Forgiveness is not at all based on what is fair. Forgiveness is not being weak. Forgiveness is not conditional. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting. And forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a choice. Right? We might think forgiveness is, is weak or something we need to feel, but it's not. It's a hard and difficult decision. So let's define the true price of forgiveness. Forgiveness is dismissing your demand that others owe you something, especially when they fail to meet expectations, fail to keep promises, or fail to treat you justly. But let's take this one step further. Forgiving is also dismissing or canceling or setting someone free from the consequences of falling short of God's standards. Right? It, it's releasing your resentment 
and bitterness towards an offender. It's releasing your rights regarding the defense, or the offense. Releasing your right to hear I'm sorry, your right to dwell on it and hold on to the offense, and your right to keep bringing up the offense. And most of all, forgiveness reflects the character of Jesus, right? We're asking for forgiveness because he shows that to, to us. And I want to call a quick pause here to say forgiveness, again, does not equal restoration of a relationship. Some things are harder to forgive, right? We could list them off. I mean, we could even try to one-up each other. Well, someone's done this to me. And some things are harder to forgive than others to deal with than others, but we're not afforded any excuses when it comes to forgiveness. Like I said, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Most often, God wants us to reconcile. It's the great mystery of the unity of the church that sinners, sinners who differ from each other, who sin against each other, are brought into one family to love each other, to bear with each other. But there are cases where reconciliation is not always wise. And if you're not sure, get counsel, get help, talk to somebody. When something so big has occurred that you can't forgive, we need to wrestle with it. We should be striving for forgiveness. If we aren't striving for forgiveness, we're going to be sinking into bitterness. Is my forgiveness dependent on someone else's repentance? No. Forgiveness is one way. I cannot wait for someone to come and ask. Jesus commands, so I should seek to forgive right away without waiting for someone to ask. Sometimes someone may never ask. So as we look at this passage, um, it's really easy. Commentators address this. Questions come up. Is this saying that my forgiveness affects my salvation? Not at all. Is it saying that my forgiveness precedes Jesus' forgiveness of, my, of me? No. It might be easy to read this and think that my actions of forgiving plays a part in my salvation or my forgiveness. That if I do not forgive, God's love and acceptance will be withdrawn. It isn't transactional. My failure to forgive is like any other sin. It disrupts that vertical relationship with God and horizontally with others as well. And it shouldn't be read like a transaction as I can earn God's love and salvation through forgiving. We forgive because we've been forgiven. I don't mean like passing it on at a drive-thru if you've heard of those things where like someone at McDonald's or Starbucks is like, hey, I'll pay for the person behind me. And they're just like, oh, I'll pay for the person behind me. And it keeps going until someone's like, nah, we're done. This isn't that small. We see that because we have been forgiven of sin that goes against the holiness of God, and we have changed hearts. God's power takes our dead hearts, and we become alive. We possess the capacity to forgive and love, even in the face of great offense. Basically, I think what this is saying, if you've really been changed by God, then the change should be evident in how you treat others. The parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 has the same idea. There's this man who owes a great debt, millions and millions of dollars to this king. And he's like, I can't do it. And the king's like, you're forgiven. 
He's like, great, that's awesome. And he goes out and he sees a guy who owes him pennies in comparison. He's like, give me my money. And the guy's like, I don't have it. And instead of showing the same compassion that he was forgiven, he's like, throw him in jail until he can pay it back. I think to get the, there should be changed heart to show the same compassion that the king showed the man, the man should pass on. And I think to get the best picture of what Jesus is saying, First John talks over and over again that if you can love your brother, which forgiveness is a huge part of that, sorry, if you can't love your brother, there is an issue between you and God. So if we truly say, I have been forgiven and changed by God, that doesn't mean just your sins have been erased, right? Your heart has been changed by the Holy Spirit. You are going through sanctification, and your life should be marked by that change. And one of those changes is told that we are called to forgive others. And if we can't forgive or we refuse to, to forgive, we must ask, have we really been changed? And this is why the two thoughts seem interdependent but my forgiveness doesn't earn my salvation or God's love, but it does mark a changed heart. And then how we view our own sin applies to how we forgive. If my sin is small in my eyes, which is really easy, right? I, I'm a good person. I go to church. I've always done good things. I can have a tendency to view my sin as small. But the reality is that any sin separates us from God whether you lied and stole a cookie or if you are a murdering drug dealer, we're all equal before God. So we must accurately view our sin to appreciate what God has done to forgive us. I really like the show Pawn Stars. Uh, if you've ever seen it, it's this pawn shop in Vegas. People bring stuff in. And one of the most humorous things is, is when people bring something in and they're like, it's really old and there's not many out there. And they take it in, and they're like, how much do you want for this? And they're like, $5,000. And they'll look, and they're like, yeah, it's old, and there's only a few of them, but nobody wants it. They're like, I'll give you 100 bucks." And they're like, no, 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 I think it's worth more than that. And they're like, it's really not. I'll give you 100 No, I just can't do this. I'll, I'll find $5,000 for it. And they're like, okay. And they walk out. Right? We do that. We're like, I'm worth $5,000, God. I'm really good. I'm decent at things. I do the right things. And if we don't view our sin accurately, right, we're going to fall into that. We're broken. We are sinners in need of a Savior. I can't do anything. I'm not even worth 100 bucks. And yet God comes and he, he died for us and he said, I am going to forgive you on nothing that you have done but because I love you and I'm showing grace. And we have to do that too. When I used to travel and speak and, and do magic shows, I would be asked to close my shows with a gospel presentation, my testimony. And right, a lot of times we think of the gospel presentation being for the people that aren't saved in the room. And as I did this more and more, I realized, man, the gospel hits us wherever we're at. If we don't know Jesus, it's an invitation to know him. And if we do, it's this, humbling reminder that God has saved me and I am his servant. So we must understand the place we are in, right? That I bring nothing to the table, that God has forgiven me my huge debt of sin. 
and I can forgive others. So there's eight reasons why we need to forgive others. These are the big whys. The first is God commands, right? He tells us. He just says, you need to forgive others, and he commands it. The second is, we do not seek revenge, right? God says that vengeance is his. Next, we should follow the example of Christ, who has forgiven us. But I think what's amazing is, on the cross, he showed this. He prayed for those that were crucifying him. Right? He prayed for those that were killing him, the best example we can follow. If we do not forgive, it affects our relationship with God, right? It's a sin. We talked about how sin is a barrier to prayer. It's going to affect that vertical relationship with God. The person who has wronged us needs our sympathy and love. We owe him or her because Jesus commands us to show it, right? That same love shown to us, we reflect to the world. Harboring a grudge and planning revenge is wicked, but also foolish, and it will deprive us of the strength we need to do the effective work of Christ. So imagine being a runner in a race, right? You've, got, you've trained, you've carbo-loaded on fettuccine Alfredo, you've got water, you've got the right shoes, you've got the right clothing, and you're at the starting line, and you look down, and there's a giant anvil chained to your ankle. Right? This is what unforgiveness does. We're like, God, I'm going to run the race. I'm going to honor you. And I'm going to try to drag this with me. It keeps us from doing the effective work of Christ. Forgiving others imparts peace of heart and mind for us. The peace that surpasses all understanding. Right? Usually forgiveness, unforgiveness doesn't usually affect the other person. We can be like, I'm mad at you and I'm not forgiving you. Never, I didn't even know that. It's been three years. It also allows us to bring peace to others as Jesus called us to be peacemakers. I think this really means not peacekeepers, peacemakers. We are called to actively go out and make peace. And the last one is the most important one. God will be glorified which should be our aim in all that we do, that people look at us and see God's great glory shown through us. And this is what I love about what the Bible calls us to, to radically live. We're not called to be nominal or an ordinary life, but one defined by Jesus. The life of a follower of Jesus is not easy, right? person that said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, forgive people without question. Those are hard things, right? We could do a whole sermon series on things we wish Jesus didn't say. The life of following Jesus is not easy. Most often it's hard and difficult. But when we live out this radical gospel love, the world looks at us and they say, you're crazy. Why do you love people that hate you? Why do you forgive people when they do terrible things and they don't even care? How can you do that? And we get to say, because Jesus did it for me, and he can do it for you too. I was listening to a sermon a couple weeks ago while on a run, and the pastor told this story about Anita Smith and her husband Ronnie, who were missionaries in Benghazi. 
Anita and Ronnie moved to Benghazi uh, and their infant son on a journey of faith. Both wanted to help bring peace, and they felt like God was calling them to Benghazi. Anita said, We knew beforehand that Libya is not safe, and we still wanted to go somewhere where we wanted to bless the people. And when she was asked if she ever felt like a target there, Anita said, Over time, I, I didn't really feel unsafe. Once we started really knowing our neighbors and them taking us into their homes and loving us, it was just normal life. But then on December 5th, 2013, a gunman in a car shot and killed Ronnie as he jogged on the street near the couple's home. After this, Anita wrote a letter, and it was published in a paper. And I'm not talking years or months. This was days after she wrote this letter. And I want to read this excerpt from it. To his attackers, I love you and I forgive you. How could I not? For Jesus taught us to love our enemies, not to kill them or seek revenge. Jesus sacrificed his life out of love for the very people who killed him, as well as for us today. His death and resurrection opened the door for us to walk on the straight path to God in peace and forgiveness. Because of what Jesus did, Ronnie is with Jesus in paradise now. Jesus did not come only to take us to paradise when we die, but also to bring peace and healing on this earth. Ronnie loved you because God loves you. Ronnie loved you because God loved him. Not because Ronnie was so great, but because God is so great. Like, I can't imagine that. Your spouse is murdered, and a couple days later you're writing this. This is what the gospel does to us when we understand the weight of our sin and the holiness of God, that I, a sinner, a rebel from God, am shown grace and forgiveness. We should fall down in awe and get up and share it with others. So who deserves our forgiveness? We often try to quantify everything, right? We have a tendency to do it. We want little niches or escapes, things that make it easier or the way we like them. But the reality is, all debts are to be forgiven. Right? Matthew 18, 21, and 22, right before Jesus tells the parable of that unforgiving servant that I shared with us, Peter asked him this question. It says, Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Right? Peter's like, hey, I'll make it look like I'm doing a lot, but I really want to do a little, but I'll make it look like I'm doing a lot and make myself feel more comfortable. And Jesus is like, no. Right? This is a radical way to live, to forgive over and over and over again, even if someone keeps coming to us. And that leads into the next one. Not only are all debts to be forgiven, but all of our debtors are to be forgiven. Like the attitude Peter represents here, is there a limit to what I forgive? We have to say, is there a person I don't have to forgive? And the thing is, there isn't. Just like we shared with Anita, she forgave her husband's murderers. So brothers and sisters in Christ, even those that do not believe, we are called to forgive our debtors. And so we ask forgiveness when we sin, we seek to show it to others, but really, 
the Christian life, the follower of Jesus' goal is to righteousness. So, right, not even sinning in the first place. So that brings us into talking about temptation. So we ask God, lead us not into temptation. And when we are being tempted, deliver us, help us overcome. Right, we were once slaves to sin. We had no choice but to sin. It was our master. But the freedom in Christ now relieves us from the power of sin, right? We no longer have to say yes to sin. We have the freedom to choose what is right. But even though the power of sin is gone from us, we still live in the presence of sin, right? We are still tempted. So what do we do? We're looking to the future now. We ask for God's help. We ask him to lead us. But leading means that we are going to follow. As we ask God to lead us, it's a commitment to following. God does not lead us into temptation, but he is our way out of it. Right? So this is not asking God, God, please don't tempt me. And we'll, we'll see in a moment, James says, God cannot tempt us, but saying, Lord, lead me out of it. And I like this quote about the life of Job. With each temptation or trial that Job went through, God set the limits on Satan to not touch his body, and later did not take his life. Similarly, God holds the temperature gauge on each trial and temptation we may encounter. So we're saying, Lord, help us, guide us through it. I saw this story from Reader's Digest. A man was on a diet and struggling, and he had to go downtown. And as he started out, he remembered that his route would take him uh, right past the donut shop. And as he got closer, the thought that a cup of coffee would really hit the spot. Then he remembered his diet. That's when he prayed, Lord, if you want me to stop for a donut and coffee, let there be a parking place in front of the shop. He said, sure enough, I found a parking place right in front on my seventh time around the block. <laughs> Most people want to be delivered from temptation, but would like to keep in touch with it. It's a quote from Robert Orban. And we laugh at this, right? But I can plug myself into the story. I mean, sadly, you could just leave the donut part of the story, too. But you can insert any sin we struggle with, right? Sometimes we don't want to fully run away. We're like, I'm not going to go to it, but I'm not fully going to run away, and what's going to happen? Do we entertain it? Do we think and dwell on it? No. But so many times, I do, if I'm being honest. It's so easy to be like, ah, oh, am I going to do it? Am I? And then we fail. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. We're called to flee, to sprint, to run away. So as we follow God, we know that is away from sin and temptation. And it's silly if we ask ourselves, how close can I get to fire without getting burned? And eventually, like every guy trying to prove his masculinity, he gets burned. Not that I know from experience. Or like poison, we don't ask, how much poison can I drink before I die? That's ridiculous. But many of us try to get close to temptation, thinking we can overcome, but we will fail. We're called to flee. 
I like how one person put it. They said, to overcome temptation, we have to recognize its source, its force, and its course. So let's talk about its source. James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So if it's not God, where? Us and Satan. So we first have to recognize, I am prone to sin, and I am weak. So that's why we come to God and say, God, will you protect us from the situations in which we will be tempted to sin and fall? And we say, but whatever happens, Lord, deliver me from evil. So even when we enter these situations, our strength is only to rely on God to deliver us. Because, man, sometimes I want sin. Sometimes my heart says it'd be so nice to just get angry and lash out or to do this or whatever it is. We also have to understand the force. The force of temptation is that it is powerful and deceptive emotional elements. Right? What we just read, James says that each one is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word he uses, enticed, comes from, it's a fishing term. Right? This The fish sees the bait and it lures him towards it. Thinking that he will catch the fish but becomes a meal for a shark. Right? If if we're not actively seeking and running away, we're going to think we're in charge and realize we're not very fast. We don't entertain temptation. It's not a guest to be welcomed at the door. We can't get as close to the line without going over because it's a massive waterfall that sucks us over it. We have to realize that Satan is craftier than we are, right? We go back to the garden. He is crafty. We cannot fight it on our own. I will fail. You will fail. And then we have to understand the course. Temptation always comes in looking attractive, it promises excitement, pleasure, or a fulfillment of our base desires. If it came honestly, it would be like, hey, would you like to destroy your life, yourself, and your family, and ultimately disgracing God all at the same time? It doesn't do that. Sin is a great salesman. It says, you need this. You'll feel better after it. You deserve this. It's what you've been looking for. What can it hurt to just try? To illustrate this, right, we, everybody likes Oreos. If you don't like Oreos, I don't know what's wrong with you. But as youth pastors do, we kind of go a little extreme to make points with our students. And so I took some Oreos and I scraped out the cream filling and I put mayonnaise in the middle. And I brought two students up. I said, the first person who can finish their Oreo wins. And they're looking, they're like, a free Oreo? This looks great. And they just pop it in their mouth and start chewing, and their faces turn fast. Right? But that's what sin does. Sin's like, look, I look great. And we're like, you do look great. And then once we partake, we're like, oh, no. What did I do? 
we see the consequences, we're convicted by the Spirit. Sin tells us, temptation tells us to take the bait, to buy into the awful sales pitch. And when we do, we start towards the road of death. And the way off is to repent. If we don't repent, we go back to the issue of, are you showing fruit? Do you truly have a changed life, right? Are you just refusing to honor God? Someone has said, watch your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Watch your actions, they become habits. Watch your habits, they become character. And watch your character, for it becomes your destiny. So how are we handling temptation? Are we seeking God to lead us out and to overcome it? Or do we prefer to entertain it? So I want to talk about four ways to combat temptation. The first is to know God intimately. We want to know God's word, right? We want to know what he says, what he's commanding us, how he encourages us. We want to spend time in prayer, right? It's not just a laundry list of God, I need this, I need this, I need this. Man, it's, it's spending time relationally with our Father. We trust his wisdom and leading, right? What the Bible says to don't do, we don't do it. What we're told to do, we should do it. We trust his wisdom, we trust his leading, and we follow it. The next one is to run from temptation. I like how James says, he says to flee. Like, I'm not a fast runner. I'm really slow. It's more of a jog, right? That's not fleeing, right? Fleeing is this dead-out sprint away. And part of that is know where you'll be tempted, right? Maybe there's certain TV shows or movies, right? And you know yourself, don't go near it. And it matters where we run to, so don't let yourself run into more temptation, right? Don't just run away, but run to something. We run to Jesus, right? That's where he comes, Lord, get me out of this. You're the only way through this. Deliver me. We know where we tend to struggle. Things that you easily turn into sin. Run, avoid these. Certain websites, certain rated TV shows. When you know you're getting angry, take a step back. And this brings us to the next one, accountability. Right? I want to encourage you, be in one of our life groups. Be with a group of people that can challenge you and you can share. Iron sharpens iron. We all need a few people in our lives that just are given complete permission to ask whatever they want to challenge and to challenge us on anything. You need people who are going to say, hey, I don't think what you're doing is right, or that's going to lead you somewhere you don't want to be. It's going to be dangerous. And as we bring struggles and sin into accountability, we learn. Like for some reason, every time I talk about money with my spouse, I get angry. And so it's not just anger that I'm dealing with. There's more beneath the surface that we need to root out. Sin isn't just a one-time event that we choose the wrong thing. And I think that's how we think about it a lot, right? I'm faced with a situation and I chose the wrong thing. But if we're really honest, we could probably see patterns in our lives. Man, I'm continuing to struggle with this. I'm continuing to struggle with this with this person. And we need to ask, what's really going on? There are usually deeper issues in our heart that drive us to temptation we need help to root those out so we can fight better. 
And the last one is, remember sin leads to death and separation from God. Temptation waits behind so many doors every day, sometimes right away in the morning. Your spouse's alarm has gone off for the third time, and they won't get up, and you're tired, so you get angry, and you're like, maybe a little flick to their face will help them get up. The kids start whining, and you just want to yell. Your friend asks if you've done the thing you said you would do, and lying seems easier than hurting their feelings. Stretching the truth to the boss to make it sound like you got more work done yesterday because you totally weren't on Facebook. It's late. No one's around. You're on your phone. It wouldn't be so bad to look at something I shouldn't. Big and small temptations rear its ugly head all the time. This is why we plead for God to lead us out. And it's not just when we're there. We, we should have a plan of action, right? Call somebody, run away from the situation, read your Bible. We can't do it on our own. I love this quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It disrupts our relationship vertically with God and horizontally with others. And we're told if it's not dealt with, it's going to lead to our demise. And I know we didn't uh, read verse 8 today, but Andy went over this last week, and it says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. And I think Jesus reveals something really important here. God already knows. You don't bring anything new to him. He knows what you need. And as we talked today, he knows your sin. God's not surprised when we pray like, hey God, I messed up, I sinned against your holiness. He doesn't gasp and claps his hand over his mouth. He knows and he's saying, bring that sin to me that I may forgive you and he welcomes us back in. He tells us to bring it to him, to bring our sins to him, to bring the burdens of temptation to him. You won't surprise God. When Jesus died, all of your sins, all of your temptations were in the future, and he knew them. And he said, I'm going to die for them. He still chose to die for you. None of this is easy, but who said following Jesus ever was? Jesus says to follow him, you have to take up your cross daily. Doesn't sound easy. It's difficult. Forgiveness is hard. Fighting temptation is hard, but it's worth it to know our Savior and to be close to him. And I want to close with reading Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I think this is a beautiful prayer to show as we struggle, and I do mean struggle, this is a fight. This isn't easy. We'll get it right some days and we'll fail miserably other days. And every day we come before our great loving, mighty King and Father to experience his love and grace. So I want to challenge you as you seek to put these things into practice, use this passage to help you do so. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's a scary prayer to pray, 
But man, God hears our prayers. He wants to bring us in. He wants us to be close to him, to know him, and to go out and change the world like we said in our first prayer. So I'm going to close this out in prayer. And as I'm doing that, I want to invite the worship team to come up as they lead us in worship. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness towards us. God, that even though we need forgiveness and we struggle and we wrestle with temptation, that you love us. Lord, give us the humility to confess, the strength to forgive, and the reliance on you to fight this temptation. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.